Welcome to Altamar. We're going to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Peter Schechter, and with me is my co-host, Muni Jensen. We're going to captain this boat for you for the next half hour or so. Join us, and please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice, and leave us a rating, a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. So after the news cycles and that have dominated the broader national dialogue with subjects like immigration or taxes or nuclear war with North Korea. Earlier this month, trade was catapulted back into this conversation. Uh, We've been talking about trade for a long time, and most of the time that we've been talking about trade, it's been about agreements like NAFTA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But it's been a long, long, really long time since we talked about trade in terms of tariffs. Um, you know, this is sort of like the zombies coming back where, and leave it to Donald Trump to bring the zombies back because he wants to disrupt the trade conversation by bringing back the issue of tariffs that we haven't seen practically since the 1930s. And this is catching everybody's attention. Trump's impulse decision to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum a few days back uh, suddenly and for the first time as far as I can remember, we're hearing people talk and serious people talk about a potential potential trade war and its implications. And worse, we have a president, President Trump, who is openly welcoming a trade war, boasting on Twitter that it would be a good thing for the American people. So today we're going to talk about the potential damage this could cause and also how this fits into a broader global conversation about open markets and globalization. Today we'll be joined by Andres Velasco, who was the finance minister of Chile from March 2006 to March 2010, the whole of the first presidential period of Michel Bachelet. He's a renowned expert on globalization, one of the architects of Chile's export-led economic success. Chile is uh, a global example, and is currently professor at professional practice in international development at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And he is the president of Citizens Political Party. We are very honored to have Andres Velasco. Velasco with us later. So Mooney always likes to start about with facts and figures. So I thought, you know, it, it's Mooney, let's do that because I think this is really important. You know, the era of global trade that was ushered in with World War II, um, you know, it expanded trade, but it really didn't expand until late in the century. And in the last 30 years, world merchandise and commercial services trade have increased about 7% per year. And, you know, with all of these supply chain efficiencies, which is, you know, you, you have a car door, which the windows are built in Mexico, but the buttons are built in uh, somewhere in Texas, and there's a supply chain that sort of bring, brings the product back and forth, you know, service commercial and services trade have increased by um, on average nearly twice as much as world production which is this huge increase in trade and free trade agreements also began proliferating um, creating massive transport and communications improvements that have really integrated the world economies through trade in ways that we have never seen before. And really, the recent boom has been in developing countries. Now, I was very much involved with some of these trade agreements when I was working for the Colombian 
government, but uh, it's not surprising that South-South trade more than tripled from 1980 to 2011, and the majority of these trade agreements today are made between emerging economies. And developing countries now make over half of the world trade, up from 33% in 1990. That is a huge increase in a huge new devotion to trade in the developing world. And that is, after all, how countries like Korea and Chile, and now China, have inserted their economies into pretty supersonic speeds. So let's look at how much benefit this has brought, because that's where the controversy lies. We have gone from having over 40% of the world living in extreme poverty in 1981 to just over 10% in 2013. Another important number, now that it's out there that I like numbers. And every social indicator across the world has improved greatly, including access to health, lifespan, nutrition, education, you name it. Of course, you can't all uh, attribute it to trade and globalization, but it is an important part of the impact of capital inflows and job creation brought by trade that has created this new welfare across the world. So I think one of the interesting questions, Mooney, is if the world is in such good shape and that these facts and figures sort of, you know, portend that we we are... in a in a place that the world has ever been before you know a friend of mine had said we've had the best quarter century of history in the world's history why is there this discussion in so many industrialized countries in particular about winners and losers in trade you know and and i think that in relative terms the biggest losers and i'm emphasizing losers i want to put that in big quotations you know have been developed in industrialized countries because what 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 is what has happened in, since you know about 1990 is that we've seen developed countries, industrialized countries, their share of world GDP has been shrinking as developing countries uh, have been increasing, both in terms of so the amount of trade and GDP. So globalization and trade have decreased inequality between countries. And that's a hugely different trend than what we used to be seeing before. You know, it used to be that people were talking about the massive differences between rich countries and poor countries. But that wealth gap started really shrinking in the 1990s and had has shrunk much in a much more accelerated way since the year 2000. And then here comes Donald Trump, um, who decided that Asia's success has come at America's expense and is now willing to wage a trade war essentially with the world. And this view, um, Donald Trump's view of trade, is, is and some of his advisors, is as trade as a zero-sum game. And it was 300 years ago a feature of the mercantilistic theory, and nobody has really proposed mercantilism since Adam Smith and David Ricardo made the case. And so it's... Can, un- I, can I just say on the zero-sum game thing, you know, I, I play squash, and I love to wear a t-shirt when I play squash that has a quote from Genghis Khan on it, which says... It's not enough that I win, all others must lose, which is, I think it's a little bit this view that Donald Trump has. Not that that ever improves my squash game, but it does reflect well what Donald Trump's view is. So the the back of the t-shirt says, make America great again? (laughs) That's probably what it should say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's continue to talk about the winners and losers, and I wish you all the victories in squash, but in trade, the winners and losers we need to talk about are not the global stage, but the national stage. And I think the real controversy, Peter, is while globalization has decreased inequality in the big numbers between countries, it has contributed to increased 
inequality within countries. And that is where this kind of anti-trade sentiment um, has grown, as populism as well has grown. So Francois Bourguignon explained perfectly in Foreign Affairs, and I quote, the average Frenchman doesn't care how many Chinese exceed his own standard of living, but that Frenchman will surely pay attention if he starts lagging behind his own fellow citizens. So all politics eventually is local. And trade and globalization are easily very, very politically expedient enemy. And the real way to help the domestic loser of globalization, however, is not protectionism, as tempting as that might sound politically, but a stronger safety net domestically. All right. So you have this, you know, expedient boogeyman, the rise of populism. And, you know, early last year, everybody was warning about this impending global doom. It would be, you know, the beginning of protectionism, the end of free markets, and Trump had taken office, populist parties were posed to do, you know, really well in Europe. And, you know, it seemed that like the quote-unquote losers, again, I'm putting that in big quotes, of globalization, were going to start dictating policy. They were going to start winning an election. They were going to aim it in the wrong directions, you know, not strengthening training or safety nets, but attacking foreign trade and closing countries off, not just in America's Rust Belt, but across Europe's Rust Belts, it looked like these nationalists were going to go from the fringe and they were going to come and take over the center. Yes, and we had people like Marine Le Pen in France raising eyebrows, talking about how it's now time to protect French industry, French companies from competition. Saying it was time to have intelligent protectionism, whatever that means. Or else France would crumble. We had the AFD in Germany with people like Hans-Jörg Müller saying that free trade agreements are just massive smokescreens. Aber die sogenannten Freihandelsabkommen, das sind die größten Nebelkerzen seit Lügenbaron Münchhausen. Railing against TTIP, the CETA, calling them facades. Egal ob TTIP oder diese CETA-Kanada-Geschichte, da geht es um freien Handel doch nur noch vor der Fassade. And even goading and joking around that the AFD had the far left to thank for helping to advance the same positions. Und ich bedanke mich bei den Kollegen von der Linken, dass sie diesen Punkt aus unserem AfD-Grundsatzprogramm auch nach vorne treiben. Der ist ja von uns. And in Austria, we had the FPO with people like Hans Christian Strache saying the same thing. Und gerade CETA und TTIP stellt eine immense Gefahr dar. Railing against free trade agreements that saying that they'll undermine Austrian sovereignty. But after the panic, by early this year, much of these fears had subsided. Populists did relatively well in Europe, but in most places, not enough to enter government. And even when they did, like it happened in Austria, necessary coalitions with traditional conservative parties put a damper on their protectionist ambitions. Now, I wouldn't say that these protectionists are dead, but they certainly did not get the victory that, that many people feared and expected. And meanwhile, major new trade deals were signed all over the world. The TPP was resurrected, this time without the United States, and people took at least some relief as it looked like the U.S. being the odd one out was not the new trendsetter. Okay, but now we got these latest tariffs, and again, we're now in the midst of this sort of huge debate about whether the world could be looking at the looming protection of waves. I mean, first there's been these tariffs on steel and aluminum. Now there's these tariffs that are being talked about 
against uh, against China. And Trump's trade calculus seems to be based a lot more on an international perspective that the U.S. is itself always the loser and somehow the issue of deficits, God knows how, but the issue of deficits is the sort of um, absolute prism through which we look at you know, whether we're doing well or not well in international trade. And that's why people fear that this is just one of the beginning of protectionist moves to come in Mexico and in Canada. They're worrying about unilateral decisions to uh, end NAFTA. In Europe, they're concerned with new tariffs on cars. Um, so, you know, it was one thing when we were worrying about whether parties with protectionist platforms would come into office. Now we're actually wondering whether American protectionist moves could actually spark a trade war of retaliations and tit-for-tat uh, exchanges uh, with an otherwise pro-trade governments all around the world. So Trump has declared trade war on Mexico, Canada, and now China. And people are starting to wonder if the fears are justified at these times and if these doomsday predictions, um, which fell flat last year, could revive with these latest moves with the United States at the helm. And could 2018 be the year of the protectionist wave and of the trade war. Now, we will ask Andres Velasco, who was the Minister of Finance of Chile between March 2006 and 2010. And during his tenure, he was recognized as Latin American Finance Minister of the Year by several major international publications. He is a great economist and thinker, and he's also the architect of Chile's successful trade-oriented open economy. And few people are better equipped to talk about the dangers of protectionism than Andres. Currently, he is a professor of professional practice and international development at Columbia University. And Mooney, he's uh, also a fellow fiction author, having written Vox Populi in 1995 and Lugares Comunes in 2003. Andres, welcome to Altamar. It's really nice to hear your voice again. And uh, I'm sure we could have, you and I could have fun talking about writing fiction, but let's concentrate on trade and its importance. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Andres, as uh, Donald Trump's policy, trade policy, becomes more and more concerning, fears are growing also about a potential global trade war as protectionism uh, begins to be part of the U.S. discourse. Is this uh, trade war possible, and what would it look like? And I have a, a short follow-up question. What would it look like globally for the global economy, but also for the guy on the street in Santiago or in Washington? Um, how would that impact just normal people? If normal people were running the White House, the answer would have to be no, it is not likely because it is the kind of situation from which you get a lot of losers and not that many winners. However, we don't have normal people running the White House. We have a guy whose actions are very hard to predict. He did something which is pretty silly. He imposed uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum imports um, on the grounds of national security. There's very heavy lobbying today going on to see who gets exempted from that. One thing that has to be emphasized is that uh, steel and aluminum trade accounts for only about 2% of total U.S. imports, and nobody has retaliated yet. So we are pretty far from a trade war so far. And I would like to think that if the United States stops there, no trade war will take place. However, it is not entirely impossible to imagine a scenario in which a few countries which don't get exempted, and I'm thinking here of Europe probably, one, one imagines that uh, Mexico and Canada and NAFTA partners will be left out. 
Well, you know, Europe could reciprocate and, and, and mostly for, for reasons of image and politics, maybe Trump would escalate and put tariffs uh, on something else. And at that point, we are looking at something much bigger and much more harmful. Now, what would it look like uh, to the man or woman on the street? The first thing you would notice is that uh, you go to Walmart or you go to Costco or you go to your local supermarket and some goods that used to be cheap are suddenly um, expensive. For instance, I was in Brazil last week. Brazil is the biggest orange juice producer in the world. Um, if Brazil uh, retaliates against the U.S. Uh, because Brazil is a producer of steel, then the U.S. could counter-retaliate and place tariffs on, say, orange juice. And at that point, uh, the local man or woman in the street would find that the, the orange juice is more expensive. And that means that the purchasing power of his salary or wage is lower and the quality of his life has been affected. Can I just ask you, Andres, and again on the on the idea of you know how bad will it get? I mean, the Washington Post front page today reports that uh, Trump has a has approved an end of the week move that will um, place sixty billion in tariffs against China. Uh, mm -hmm. suppo supposedly, the memo went to him with thirty billion in tariffs, and he said double that. Mm -hmm. And again. It's not done, as you warn us. It, this hasn't been right. done. But if it's done, do you, I mean, the Chinese government is not just going to sit back and take that. No, absolutely not. I think it's pretty clear that a lot of this has China uh, as its ultimate goal. I suspect with the original round of tariffs, you will, you will see countries being left out of the punishment, but China will not be among those countries. So, uh, yeah, the Chinese um, will simply not uh, sit down and take it uh, quietly. But on the other hand, uh, China is a country that has become wealthy uh, trading. It has become a much more open economy in the last couple of decades. Uh, China is also a dictatorship, so its politics uh, are not uh, subjected to the to and fro of, uh, of media-driven pressures. Um, not for dictatorship, but, but certainly not, but that is a, a feature of dictators. So I suspect um, China is going to reciprocate uh, if these tariffs, in fact, go into effect, but uh, one step at a time. Uh, I don't want to sound uh, too optimistic. I think there is a real trade uh, danger here. Uh, and the danger especially is from, sorry for sort of underscoring this again, from the unpredictability of uh, U.S. actions. If you know, one could sort of ascertain what the game plan is, uh, one could say, well, this is going to get bad or not so bad or very bad. But as you say, you know, a, a piece of legislation or, 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 or a measure goes into the president's office with one number, it comes out with twice that number, so it's very hard to know exactly what is going on. But again, on the Chinese side, they will, they will reply, but... Uh, but I, it is also in their interest to avoid a full-scale conflict, so I suspect the response will be measured. I wanted to go back to something you said about China being a dictatorship and how that makes uh, enforcing trade policy somewhat easier. And as we look worldwide, countries like Korea, Singapore, and Chile have been very successful in towards an, with an export-led strategy promoting growth and prosperity. Uh, however, we... Chile did begin its policy with an authoritarian government. How has Chile managed to continue this trade policy with subsequent governments that are from several ends of the spectrum? 
I think one of the good things that happened in Chile over the last two or three decades, and one could say the same about, say, Korea, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, also other countries in Latin America, is that um, governments of the left, governments of the right, uh, under a democratic uh, system, have all chosen that it is in the national self-interest to remain engaged with the world economy. Uh, especially small countries, um, think here of Hong Kong, Singapore, Uruguay, New Zealand, Chile, you know, each one of those countries is 1%, 2%, in Chile's case, 0.2% of total world output. So clearly the only way forward is to become more prosperous by making and selling things to the world that the world would like to buy. Uh, and for that, you have to import. You cannot export if you don't import, among other things, because you, you import raw materials, you import technology, you import uh, machinery, etc. Now, I think... Uh, that does not mean that all trade opening at all times is unambiguously good. We know that sometimes trade liberalization has winners and losers. And I think part of the enduring success of trade, open trade policies in some of these countries is that governments have, have always been um, quite uh, aggressive and quite proactive in designing adjustment packages, in providing... Um, cushion to declining industries in uh, spending money on labor retraining so that, in fact, uh, the broad majority of the country is the winner of the open trade policy and not uh, just a small elite. That, of course, is easier said than done. There are many wrinkles in that argument. But uh, I think the experience of Chile, the experience of a number of other trading countries in, um, in northern Europe, for instance, the, uh, the Scandinavian countries, shows that it can be done. It requires political will, it re requires clarity of purpose, but it can be done under a democratic regime. And Dennis, let me ask you, I mean, one of, one of the more interesting things that has happened in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years has been the increase in trade among developing countries, the so-called South-South trade. And with, with the U.S. seemingly determined to get off the trade train, or at least to politically say it's off the trade train, and there seems to be an acceleration of interest among other countries. Indeed, you know, I'm 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 sort of fascinated by the uh, Pacific Alliance, uh, which is you know Chile, Peru, Mexico, and, and Colombia now reaching out to Argentina and Brazil. And so, I guess one of the, the the question here is, could actually the the U.S.'s anti-trade policy provoke the opposite, which is getting countries like Brazil, which has been sort of quite close or India, which needs to open up even more, uh, getting them to do uh, to become more open economies? Will South-South trade increase? You're absolutely right, I think. Uh, and I would even be bolder than, than, than your question suggested. This is not something that could potentially happen. It's happening already. A week ago exactly, um, here in Santiago, Chile, 11 countries came together to sign the new uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Pact, a pact that initially had the United States uh, among its members. But uh, I believe the first thing Donald Trump did when he got to the Oval Office was to say that he was pulling the United States out. At first, people said, OK, you know, the, the, the pact is dead without the U.S. This cannot fly. Wrong. Uh, a number of countries led by New Zealand said, no, 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 we can still have an agreement without the U.S., and in fact, uh, the agreement was uh, completed and signed. 
and, and, and countries like Canada and like Mexico and like Peru and Chile and, of course, a number of Southeast Asian countries had no problem agreeing to a deal without the United States. Some of that is also happening. Um, and by the way, that is not simply South-South because it involves rich countries and poor countries. It involves um, countries in North America and South America, in East Asia, Australia, New Zealand. So I think there's, there's a potential here for all kinds of new trade, South-South, North-South, uh, and all the possible combinations. Some of that is also going on, I think, in South America. You pointed out to the Pacific Alliance, that includes Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and Chile. Uh, for many years, uh, the leaders of the Pacific Alliance have been hoping for a convergence with the countries on the Atlantic side of South America, the so-called Mercosur bloc led by Argentina and Brazil. But that was very hard uh, because Argentina and Brazil had their own brand of populists. You know, Donald Trump is a right-wing populist in Argentina, had left-wing populists in power. Now, both of those countries have, uh, have uh, presidents in office who have their problems, but who are certainly um, people you can do business with when it comes to trade agreements. So I would not be surprised at all if in the next couple of years you saw a convergence of policies between the uh, Pacific Alliance and the countries on the Atlantic side. One big question mark, of course, is that Brazil has presidential elections later this year, and um, I was in Brazil last week. It's very much an open question who will win that. But uh, under many plausible scenarios, I think you will see greater trade within South America and potentially a convergence between the uh, Pacific Alliance bloc and Mercosur. I think it, I think it's fascinating the way the way uh, the the the, uh, the distrust of trade by some is fomenting a increased trust in trade by others. Now, and let me let me. Let me end our conversation. Can I add one thing there? Yeah. One um, can be bolder. I wrote a piece a while ago, and, you know, didn't get that much of a response, but, uh, you know, I, I, I will keep agitating. Um, why not a free trade area of the Americas without the United States? Of course, you know, the first best, the idea would be with the U.S., but if the U.S. doesn't want to go along, I'm sure the Canadians will say yes, certainly the Mexicans will say yes. And as we were just pointing out a, a second ago, there's uh, increasing uh, goodwill toward that idea within South America. You've got Canada, you've got Mexico, you've got Brazil, you've got Argentina, you've got the Pacific Alliance. Well, um, that leaves only a handful of countries uh, out there. Maybe Nicaragua under its current leadership would not want to go along. Certainly Venezuela wouldn't go along. But um, you'd have a good chunk of the GDP of the, of the hemisphere. So that's another possibility. Uh, it won't happen tomorrow, but it could happen within the next five or ten years. Absolutely. Well, I think that's that that's a fa fascinating thing. And let me let me end with a, what seems like a really elementary school question, but I I don't think it is. Which is those what, will be the toughest ones, right? Which is you know if we just look around, particularly the industrialized world. I mean, if you look at what you know Marine Le Pen espousing intelligent protectionism and the the German populist party, the AFD, saying that you know free trade agreements are just smoke screens and and the way Donald Trump talks about uh, trade why has popular why have populists chosen to attack trade you know you're you're not only a great economist you're also a politician so I'm asking the right person this question why is trade such a popular um, a bullseye for populists I think they've chosen that way for good reasons and bad reasons the good reason, and I'm certainly not uh, in favor of populists, but one has to understand the underlying phenomenon. The good reason is that we do see a stagnation of middle class wages in uh, a number of advanced economies. 
the U.S. being the poster child for this. And we do see a deterioration in the distribution of income with uh, the top 10% and the 1% capturing an ever larger share of, 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 of income. Now, there's a big debate among economists uh, uh, as to how much of those two changes can be explained by changes in trade patterns as opposed to other changes, among them technology. And the consensus seems to be that, that trade plays a role, but a fairly minor role. Um, however, I think there is room, uh, and this is not something that populists need to do, uh, but that liberal centrist governments ought to be doing, there is room to be more active in trying to compensate lose, losers from um, trade opening, provide them with skills, provide them with retraining, etc. So that's a good reason. Uh, my friend Danny Roderick, professor from Harvard, uh, used to be my colleague at the Kennedy School, you know, wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, there's bad economic populism and there's good economic populism, and I think that's what he had in mind. Now, the bad part of it, of course, is that um, these careful and measured judgments about the role of trade can be, be very easily manipulated and replaced by um, populism, demagoguery, and anti-foreigner feeling. You know, if you're a politician, it's much easier to blame the foreigners for your country's ills than to blame your old shortcomings. You know, it's, it's very hard to say to the French, as Emmanuel Macron did, look, guys, you know, we used to be a powerhouse of innovation. We aren't anymore. We work less than our neighbors, and uh, we have more privileges than our neighbors. We're going to have to work harder and innovate more. He pulled it off because he's a very skilled politician, but most politicians are not as bold. They don't say that sort of thing. It's much easier for uh, Marine Le Pen and many others to say, oh, the fault of the Muslims, the fault of people who don't look uh, uh, like us or don't have the same nationality or the same color of skin or the same religion. And that is indeed a very toxic mix. It is toxic and politically powerful, and that's why you know, we do see a, a more or less coordinated rise of, of, of populists of the right and of the left in very different countries. You, know, you mentioned Germany and, and France, but uh, the same is true in Scandinavian countries, the same is true in, in Spain, the same is true in Greece and Hungary and many other countries. Uh, I don't think they've won the battle. In fact, uh, they've lost several battles. Perhaps the most obvious one of them was, in fact, uh, Le Pen's uh, defeat in the election at the hands of Macron. But this is, you know, an ongoing fight and um, a lot more is going to happen in the months and years to come. Absolutely. And, and Altamar did a podcast specifically on Macron and, and, uh, and his political boldness in winning the election, his political future, how he's going to stay on top. Andres Velasco, thank you for joining us on Altamar today. You're kind to have given us your time. On the contrary, I, I was privileged and it was a great pleasure. Happy to be on the show again if you want to invite me back. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Peter, we are very trade-friendly here at Altamar, but we have to acknowledge that free trade does have uh, negative impacts on some of the countries that engage in it without preparing the population, without preparing its infrastructure, education, without accounting for displaced jobs that eventually obviously uh, take place when markets are open. I remember uh, the whole discussion in Colombia where there were significant trade associations and groups that were adverse to trade because they were positively or, excuse me, negatively impacted by just opening up markets indiscriminately. So I do think countries have to be careful in uh, just advocating for trade without having an internal agenda that runs parallel that counters some of the effects of it. 
and I think you know the, the 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 jury is still out on whether attacking foreign trade is a winning political argument. What happened in uh, early March um, in Pennsylvania, the 18th congressional district, in which uh, the district swung from a 20 percent vote difference for Trump over Hillary Clinton to electing by by only a few hundred votes but nonetheless it's won 20 points to elect a democrat now you know that democrat was also for steel tariffs but the point here is that you know Trump announced those steel tariffs at the you know, exact time designed to influence that elect that election in Pennsylvania. He did it about a week before. And, you know, it was a bet that didn't work. And so I think, I think you know, a, a lot of us who are worried about how populism uh, is going to really affect trade, uh, we certainly felt very good about how this election turned out in that um, it really didn't, didn't make that much of a difference. Well, pr- protectionism is really good as a campaign slogan and when you're working, uh, you know, campaigning in districts where people are losing their jobs. And I think the trade question really is not a question of whether or not it's good. It's pretty much there's consensus that it is, but how to do it. And countries have been that have uh, stayed away from global trade will end up like Cuba, like Venezuela, like other very protectionist places that don't have a lot of prosperity for its people. And then the question of a global trade war uh, led by the United States is still on the table. It's estimated by a very serious economist that that will cause a shrinking of one between one and three percent of the global GDP. So let's hope that uh, Trump comes to his senses and inserts the U.S. back into the global trade arena very, very soon. And, you know, I, you know, is the U.S. going to be the odd man out here? And I, I'm just afraid that if he really goes forward with, uh, with you know, first the the, the uh, seal aluminum tariffs, now tariffs against China, uh, you know, when you burn bridges, the bridges are burned. You can't go back. And it, it's not an issue of electing a better guy next time or a better woman next time. But but the 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 fact is that those burned bridges are going to create, you know, China's going to retaliate. The EU is going to retaliate. Um, different different countries are going to begin retaliating against you know U.S. products, and of course they're going to be very smart about which U.S. products. So there's going to be bourbon from Kentucky because the Senate Majority Leader is from Kentucky, and there's going to be Harley Davidsons from Wisconsin because the House Speaker's from Wisconsin. I mean, there's going to be all types of retaliations that are going to create a worse world for us and the consume and those who pay are going to be consumers. And I hope we're wrong and we don't have a next episode on the global trade war. That's it for all. Tamar, thank you for joining us and please go to iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. We would love to hear from you. Leave a rating and a review. We'll see you next time.